0: Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. The longer I walk this earth, the longer I live, the more I'm I'm getting to understand prayer as one of those deep non-negotiables for navigating life. Now that doesn't mean I pray well, because the longer I live, the more I also see how, uh, what a beginner at prayer I am. I, some of you know, I put together a prayer book that's been published. It's actually been a bestseller, which blows me away. But I wrote that book for me, because my prayer life just needed help. I needed help to to connect with God, to pray. My prayer life wasn't working well, and I still, I fumble and I bumble around in my prayers. I want to pray. I want to communion with God. But I still flounder in it. Now maybe that surprises you. You think, you're a pastor, isn't this your job? you know <laughs> Is't this professional uh, uh, incompetence here? Um, but it shouldn't should surprise you because if there is a universal reality that I find about prayer, no matter the culture, no matter the historical era, it is both the desire to pray, to commune with God, and the struggle to do just that. If you listen to some of the lives of the giants of the Christian faith, people, you know, we could name off who who live these remarkable Christian lives, if you listen to them, and if you listen to very ordinary Christians... You'd hear similar echoes, similar stories, people who struggle to get anywhere in prayer, people who envy how it seems like others seem to be praying so well, so much closer to God. And as I talk to many of you, I hear the same echoes, the real same profound longing to to commune with God, to know him, to know him more than just intellectually, but to encounter, to experience his presence. And yet then the same struggle to do just that, to pray well which makes me really glad for this five-week sermon series that we're beginning today on prayer. So for the next five weeks, we're going to explore prayer. And we could look at some of the different forms of prayer, like praise and intercession and confession. We're not going to do that. What we want to do is look at the different levels of prayer. We want to go dive deep into what is this thing called prayer, this communion with God. And it is so vital for us as, as a community, but also as individuals. It's vital for us as a community because we seek renewal here at Knox. And biblically and historically, the the one non-negotiable, the universal ingredient in times of spiritual renewal has always been corporate, prevailing, intensive, kingdom-centered prayer. So if you want to see renewal here among us as a church, spiritual vitality at Knox, then discover new depths of Prayer. That's why we're doing this. But we're also doing this because individually we want to see that renewal. Prayer is foundational for our own individual spiritual renewal. See, here's the deal. some of, we, we have beliefs. We have beliefs about God. But those beliefs don't automatically produce a different life, a changed character in us. Unless those beliefs get turned into a changed character through spiritual disciplines, through Christian practices. For example, I I assume many of us here, most of us, believe in God and believe that God loves you. We don't just believe in a generic God. We believe in this God, our Father, who loves us. And yet, many of us can be as discouraged or as anxious or as self-conscious as anyone else who doesn't believe in God or who doesn't believe that God loves them. What does that mean? Somehow that belief hasn't renewed our lives. Somehow it hasn't brought actual change in the way our heart works, in the way your life works. So how do you do that? Through prayer. Now let's be clear, prayer is not therapy. Okay, it's not an exercise in self-understanding. Prayer is communion with the living God. Christian prayer is friendship with God. The triune God, friendship with this very personal God who befriends us as he reveals himself to us through his word, through speech. And that's why Christians talk about prayer as conversation. You know, they're not just talking to their special invisible friend. No, they're talking, engaging with the living God through conversation because God speaks. He addresses our lives and prayer is how we respond to that living God. And this is really critical for our understanding of prayer. That prayer is our response to God. That it is an answer to how God has first spoken to us. Think for a minute about how conversations function in everyday life. If you think about a normal conversation, somebody starts that conversation, right? Somebody has to start the conversation. Someone chooses the tone of the conversation. Someone chooses the subject of that conversation. And you can, you know, redirect if you want. But it sounds pretty weird if someone starts talking about the Blue Jays and you just say, uh, talking about some internal stuff in your heart. Um, So someone directs it always, right? So let's say if someone starts out with, what were you thinking? That sort of sets the tone for that conversation, doesn't it? That sort of sets out the content for that conversation. And you respond in a way appropriate to the way that conversation started. Or if someone says, oh man, how about those J's? That conversation, you know the content of it. You know the tone of it. You know where it's going. God has spoken to us. He has begun the conversation with us. He has started it. And prayer is our response to that conversation that God has initiated with us. If we are the starting point, if we're the driver of prayer, the focus of prayer, again, it just becomes sort of therapy, a self-massage. But the deal is God has spoken already. He speaks in creation. He has spoken in Jesus. He's spoken through his word. And our prayer is is a fitting, appropriate response to how God has revealed himself to us. Which brings up the question, then, how do we pray in a way that fits the conversation that God has started? Where do we go learn to pray? That was the key question that the disciples asked Jesus at one moment in time. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what Jesus did, interestingly enough, in response, is he didn't give them a lecture. He didn't give them a teaching. He gave them a prayer. He taught them to pray by praying. And so what we're going to do in this series is learn to pray by praying. And as we seek to learn about prayer, we're going to turn to actual prayers, and, and we're going to turn to the prayer book of the church, which is found in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms has been the prayer book of God's people throughout history. And and the Psalms are all forms of responses to God, expressions of praise and wonder, there is smoking hot anger at God there is is reasoned arguments with god there 's whining complaints to god there 's requests there 's pronouncements there 's blunt in your face questions, A whole range. One theologian, John Calvin, called the psalms the anatomy of the human soul it 's sort of gets at the full range of human emotions. And it is so important for us to learn how to pray these prayers, these psalms, because sometimes they contain responses to God that maybe we're a little uncomfortable with or unfamiliar with. And so by ourselves, we might not fully engage that full scope of biblical prayer if we just prayed out of our own inner needs or our psychological defaults. So for example, some of us, you know, we might think of prayer as a divine help hotline, and so all our prayer is request. And we might never get to enjoying God, delighting in God. For others of us, because of our sunny disposition, we might, it might be all praise you, God. Thank you, God. And we never dare pray the cranky anger of laments that are in the Psalms. Some of us struggle with faith. We we pray our questions and our doubts really well to God, but we never get to the postures and the prayers of trust. And so we pray the Psalms because we don't want our prayers to be limited, narrowed. We want a full prayer life. And so we learn appropriate humility and reverence. We learn that God can be wrestled with. We learn he can be trusted and loved. So for the next five weeks, we're going to tap into this prayer book, this prayer treasury, learning to pray by praying the Psalms. And in your conversation communities, as Paul mentioned earlier, um, we're going to be providing resources and practices that are going to help with this. So I encourage you, check out your conversation community guides. And if you're not part of one, I urge you, get in one. Um, It's a great way for us to explore together. Now today, we're going to begin with Psalm 1. That was a long introduction, I know, to Psalm 1. And this is really strange that we're beginning a series of sermons on prayer with Psalm 1 because Psalm 1, of all the Psalms, is not a prayer. It's not a prayer. Did you notice that? It doesn't directly address God at all. The Psalter is a prayer book and it's an edited prayer book. It has been compiled, um, and Psalm 1 is very intentionally placed at the beginning of the psalm, marking the entrance into prayer. And Psalm 1 is a sort of an introduction to prayer. It is what someone has called pre-prayer. It's getting us ready. And the psalm starts off by describing this life of prayer in the first word, blessed. It's a life of blessing. Look at the magnificent claim here. Blessed is the one. And then it lays out, interestingly, two ways of life. It lays out a way of life where blessing is not found and a way of life in which blessing is found. Blessing is not found, the psalmist says, by walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, what does that mean to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or as some translations put it, to walk and step with the wicked. There's a pretty good definition I heard once um, from someone else, and it says, this counsel of the ungodly is simply the way most people talk. It's just the way most people talk. It's the chatter you hear online and on talk radio most of the time. The counsel of the ungodly. It's pervasive. It's widespread. It's coming at you all the time, and it's just the way most people talk. I met someone recently who works in a large corporation downtown, and he struggles with how to be a humble, Christ-like servant in that corporate environment. And in the conversation, he was talking about how in order to be recognized by senior levels of management, he is pushed, like he feels this drive to to become very self-promotional in order to move ahead. And, And he's picking up the message that he needs to do whatever it takes, trample on whomever to get ahead. What is that? That's the counsel of the ungodly. That's what that is. Or say somebody criticized me as sometimes happens because sometimes there's stuff worthy of criticism. But I usually talk to my wife about it, sort of debrief. And Betty sometimes might say wisely, I think there's something you need to listen to there. That's not what I want to hear from my wife. <laughs> right? I want her to agree with me that my critic is sort of, you know, stunted at some low moral level of development. I want her to confirm my bias. What do I want? I want the counsel of the ungodly. That's what that is. We hear it all day long. It's all around us. Acquire more. Look younger and sexier. Pursue your own happiness. Even if it hurts your family or others around you. Even if it compromises your integrity. Prioritize your self-interest over community commitments. Get even with those who hurt you. We're bombarded with the counsel of the ungodly. And it's interesting. That's the first one. Don't walk in that way. And there's a progression. And it's even, you see the progression in terms of the posture. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And then, um, so the first step is you're walking. And the next step is you find yourself standing in the way of sinners. Don't stand in the way of sinners. And the idea here is now you're not just walking along with them. No, you're actually sort of standing. You're having a conversation. You're being influenced by the counsel. You're standing in the way of sinners and your life is affected. And then it leads to a third stage of sitting. Now you're just getting comfortable with them. Once you were walking with them, then you were st- now you're just at ease. You're sitting with them, um, with mockers. You're hanging out with scoffers, the people who mock, who ridicule the very things that you ought to be humbly pursuing. And the psalm says that that way there's just no blessing. In fact, he describes that way of life with an image, chaff. Now, what's chaff? Chaff is the husk of a kernel of a seed, the covering. And in winnowing or threshing the seed, that the seed falls down and the husk gets blown away. There's, there's no value to chaff, right? It's not productive at all. It's not going to, if it falls to the ground, grow something new. It's, it's just dead. It's hollow. It's lightweight. It gets blown away. It's a picture of, of a superficial, hollow life. That's one way of life, the psalmist describes, and that is not a flourishing life. There is another way, the psalmist says. This is the way of blessing. And that word blessing, um, you know, it sounds sort of happy and trite to us. The Hebrew word for blessing is so rich. It's this complete sense of life flourishing. Think of every dimension of your life and flourishing in that sense of life. That's what that biblical word blessing talks about. And the psalm tells us that that, that flourishing comes to the person who has learned to do something, to meditate upon the law of the Lord. Totally fulfilled, absolute well-being comes to the person who knows how to enjoy and meditate on the law of the Lord. That's the promise we get as we enter into this book of prayers, the Psalms. Psalm 1 is this gateway to prayer, gives The central place to the practice of meditation. It is saying, if you want to experience this rich, deep prayer life with God, as God instructs you, you have to meditate. Now, why would meditation have all these huge promises attached to it? Because meditation is, is like a gateway to prayer. It is prayer that gets us beneath the surface of things. See, meditation is sort of a middle ground between Bible study and, and between prayer. It's, it's a bridge between these two things, and it's a key to prayer. Now, how so? For many Christians, we have learned to engage God um, through two things, two practices, Bible study and then prayer. And so often what you do is you study your Bible, which is an important discipline, And what you're doing is something very cognitive, right? You're learning what truth is, and then you pray, and often you continue in that cognitive vein. You tell God things about the truth of your life, what you need, and your prayers stay in that cognitive vein. Now, these are two key parts of our conversation, right? But there's a critical bridge between these two, and meditation is that bridge. It is that middle ground between Bible study and prayer. Because when you meditate, all of a sudden you enter into prayer in a very different way. Your heart is alive. It is warmed up. It is inflamed. Psalm 1 is the theological reason for this. Your prayers are going to be, end up very, uh, totally cognitive, and, and I bet, fairly unsatisfying. Um, not experiencing real communion unless you affect your heart with what you just learned in your study. Unless you drill it down deep into your heart, you need to warm yourself with that. You need to affect yourself before you pray. And this is what meditation is. It is about taking what you've learned cognitively and working it deep into your heart. Now we're sort of already getting into what meditation is, so let's press further into it. The essence of meditation is, is making the truth you know real to your hearts. The essence of meditation is taking something you know cognitively, the Word of God, the truth of who He is, and saying, I, I'm going to flesh this out. I'm going to bring it into both my emotional and my volitional life. I'm going to bring it into my heart and will. There's a couple of pictures in that Hebrew word for meditation. One is to growl. It's used of a lion sort of growling over its prey. You can almost imagine a lion just sort of savoring in delight, and anticipation, the meal it's gonna have. And it's that growl, or, or a dog gnawing on a bone, it's savoring it, it is the sense of sustained enjoyment, savoring, drawing strength from this. There's another meaning to the word, another uh, word, it means to mutter, to say again and again, at the heart of meditation really is an important principle, that, that what you repeat, you retain. So you repeat it. What you repeat, you retain. You keep it. Meditation is, is not meant, you got to know, to be something esoteric. Uh, and, you know, not something that only guru types of Eastern mysticism follow. In fact, it's, Christian meditation is very different from Eastern meditation. Um, Eastern meditation is the emptying of the mind. Christian meditation is the filling of the mind with truth. It's an immersion in God's revelation. It's a dwelling on truth so that we experience it. This is the heart of meditative prayer, to get an experience of the gospel, communion with God. I love what one Scottish theologian, John Murray, says about prayer, this this form of meditative prayer. He calls it intelligent mysticism. I love that. That's bang on. Intelligent mysticism. Yes, so it's not losing your mind at all. But it is sensing with your mind. It is descending with your mind into your heart. It is and there encountering God with the convictions of your mind and the affections of your heart. It is making the truth of God vividly real to your heart. And you know how to do this. Maybe some of you are thinking I'm not real real practice at this. I'm not sure what you're talking about. I'm not sure. You do, I know you do. Anyone who here worries knows how to do this, seriously. If you've ever worried about anything, you know how to meditate. Because here's how worry goes, right? We worry and we imagine some future scenario that is negative, generally. That's what worry is. And we dwell on that negative thing, that negative outcome. And we can imagine it in all its details There's a conversation going in your heart. There is this back and forth about that negative outcome, that negative future. You worry about how badly a relationship is going to turn out. You turn over in your mind the many ways you're going to blow that job interview. You dwell on all the different ways your child is going to turn out badly. About how weird your nose looks. About how out of style the clothes you've picked out just are. And you think long and hard about worst case scenarios and you play them out in your mind in vivid and spectacular detail. And all that worry becomes so real to you and strikes your heart with anxiety and fear. You, you physically feel it. That's a form of meditation, a really awful, miserable, untruthful form of meditation, but you're meditating. Christian meditation has the same dynamic but it takes the truth of God. It takes the truth of your salvation, your identity in Jesus Christ, and it takes it deep into your heart. And in the same way, it plays it out in vivid detail. It dwells upon that truth. It affects your emotions. It's, you think out the implications about how it will affect your life. You're, you're saying to yourself, because I believe this truth, because this is what the Bible says, here's the implications of it. Here are the applications for how I'm going to live my life. Here is how it's going to affect my work life. Here are the implications for how I'm going to relate to that person. It's interesting if you read through some of the Psalms, you find the Psalmist doing that. You find the Psalmist talking to themselves. And you might think that sounds a little schizophrenic, but it's actually biblical. Psalm 27 verse 8 says this, My heart says of you, Seek his face. The psalmist is saying to a heart, my heart, it says, seek his face. Psalm 42, we read, why my soul are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. You see what they're doing? They're talking to their own hearts. They're taking the truth of God and saying, I'm going to connect this to my emotions. I'm not feeling that way right now. Something else is at play. But I'm gonna take the truth that I know is real and I'm gonna make it real. I'm gonna connect it to everything in my life. There's so much we could go over in meditative prayer, um, too much for this morning. So we're, we're gonna have actually an evening teaching on meditative prayer a little bit later on, in a week and a half or so. So pay attention to that. But I wanna leave you with just one image of what this is like. And it comes from Psalm 16. It's a picture that I think is helpful that captures what this gateway into prayer is like. And in Psalm 16, verse 8, David writes this. He says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Another translation puts it this way. I have set the Lord always before me. This is the heart of meditation, of prayer as this conversation. It is is a setting of the Lord before your heart, before your mind's eye. David was able to write these amazing psalms, these prayers. He was able to pursue God with such passion, not in his own strength, but because he was always setting the Lord before him. So there were times when David's heart was dry and thirsty and parched when he doubted. And then he would he would set the Lord before him and he would see the power and the glory of God in his mind's eye and his soul was satisfied and filled. Or there were moments when he was scared, when he was frightened, when he was facing troubles and dangers, but he would set the Lord before the eyes of his heart and the security of God would become so real, providing this calm and giving confidence. And Christians do this When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we always set Jesus before us because Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the most compelling speech, the most compelling word of God to us. He is the clearest image and representation of the Father. So in our meditation, we always set Jesus before us and we see the cross and we linger on the love that moved Jesus to live, to die for us. We set before our hearts the wonder of this resurrection life, We always set before us Jesus Christ. And you can read that throughout the New Testament, different ways that take shape. In Galatians 3, verse 1, Paul talks to the Galatians and he says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, physically, historically, that's just not true. Jesus did not come to Galatia or those Galatians did not go to Jerusalem. They were set far away in geography and in history and time. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about how the Bible uses sensory language whenever it talks about meditation, moving from intellectual knowledge to heart experience. Paul uses this word, clearly portrayed, graphically portrayed, and what he's saying is, you had some facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, you knew it, but then you began to meditate, and that truth became real, and you saw it, Christ was clearly portrayed. He was set before your heart. And it was no longer a concept, but it was something that grabbed you in the heart. That's what meditation does. Or, or Ephesians 1, Paul says, prays that the eyes of their heart might be opened so that you might know the hope that you've been called to. Now, why did they not already know this? Of course they did. They were Christians, these Ephesians. But he's praying, no, 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 that, that you not just hear it, but that you see it, that you know it deep in your heart. That comes through meditation, through making what is abstract real to our hearts. So always set Jesus before your eyes. Look at Him loving you. Look at Him dying for you. Look at Him rejoicing you. Look at Him praying for you. Set Jesus before you, and you will be a delight, and you will experience delight in the law of God, and you will be like a tree planted by streams of water you will be flourishing bearing fruit in season no matter what might happen this is the good promise that god gives may we all enjoy that sort of flourishing prayer life together let's pray right now heavenly father we are so grateful for This wisdom that you offer to us—how, in a simple act of meditative prayer, our hearts might come alive. God, we long deeply for a renewed prayer life, and we pray for that. We ask that, and we pray that you would teach us this practice of meditation. Help us to know this well, God, so that we might pray well and flame our hearts. Make true, make real to us all the gospel truth that we know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.